And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. Yes, we are here on Thursday, January 7th, recording this episode. And today we're going to talk about Not Your Sidekick. But a weird thing happened in America yesterday. And so we're going to, I guess it's not weird, scary. I don't know. We're all kind of collectively processing it. So we're going to use this book to try and talk about our feelings on the insurrection insurrection an attempted coup treason all of the above apply yeah maggie and i have been talking about this essentially since it happened so the past 24 hours have been tough but we've been trying to figure out how we feel about this and how we're going to talk about it on the episode and we had already scheduled not your sidekick as you all know and we did some reflecting and thought that maybe this was a good book to try and help contextualize this current real world situation for us yeah i agree i think the one thing we lied to you about with not your sidekick is that it is in fact a young adult novel not a middle grade novel like we said last week sorry (laughs) okay i guess that makes sense i guess it's young adult my bad So where did you want to start today, Maggie? Do we want to give a summary of the novel or do we want to start with context? Let's maybe give a summary of the novel so that we can talk about why we think it makes sense to discuss some of yesterday's events in this context. Because on its surface, this is a dystopian future superhero novel, which might not obviously connect to our listeners to yesterday's events. Yeah. So this is my second reading of this novel, and it's about a young girl who is a part of a superhero family. And the events in this novel take place in Nevada, in the USA, after the Third World War has happened. So things are a little bit different, and one of them is that people now have superpowers. And she at the beginning of this novel, is trying to figure out what her superpower could be and whether or not she was born with one. Because her parents and her older sister have superpowers. And she really has always wanted to be a superhero. And this book is kind of about her finding her self-worth outside of superpowers. Even though it turns out she does later actually have a power. It's just a very undervalued one. And there's a wonderful side narrative having to do with her like high school crush who she doesn't know that well and then ends up working with and who ends up being the daughter of her parents' arch nemesises, two villains named Master and Mistress Mistress. <laughs> it's hard to say. And throughout their work together, she she discovers that she's okay working for the villains because she's discovered that she has critical thinking skills and the villains haven't actually hurt anyone. They just kind of do these weird little pranks and she develops some sort of self-worth this way. And, you know, she wins the love of her crush 
And she also ends up uncovering this plot that the government has where they make superheroes and also like document superheroes and only certain people get to be superheroes if they're willing to play along with the government narrative and this whole superhero super villain nonsense is really just a way to feed like loyalist propaganda into citizens of this new this new united states so yeah, <laughs> is there anything I missed there, Maggie? No, I think you're totally correct. This is very much a novel that's about understanding societal myth, I would say, and what we accept as truth and why. And also, I would say why it can be really hard for people to see past what we've been taught to believe societally. Um But the reason that we wanted to talk about kind of yesterday's events in conjunction with this novel is that it deals really relevantly with a lot of important societal issues that like racism, like homophobia, like sexism, that we really see tie into the current polarizing political rhetoric, I would say, that largely fueled what we saw occur at the Capitol building yesterday. Yes. And I think too, there is a running theme throughout this novel of being critical of authority, which I know is dangerous to talk about right now, but we're going to talk about it because we need to. And a running, like being critical of authority in a macro and micro level Because this character herself, she is a second generation Asian immigrant. And I say Asian because her parents come from two different cultures. And she's bi. And she's just kind of like your average Hufflepuff, like humble person. Her superpower is finding things. So she's like an actual Hufflepuff. Like she's a very low-key, humble character. And even the title called Not Your Sidekick, it's all about finding value in these things that we're told don't have any value. And I think that in context to what happened yesterday, even though I'm still really trying to figure it out and my narrative of yesterday keeps changing, I think one of the reoccurring themes for me is trying to think critically about what happened and trying not to let my emotions paint a picture that will make me more susceptible to manipulation. Yeah, which is really, really hard because what happened yesterday was understandably, it's easy to have an emotional response to. And that's people's first instincts, I think, because it is a real moment of what the fuck, you know? Like, I woke up this morning personally and legitimately felt like I was still in the twilight zone, you know? (laughs) Uh, And was just like, oh, yesterday actually did happen and that was all real and now you have to start trying to process it. And as much as Harmony and I have been talking for months and months and months now about political unrest and the potential of revolution, um, I don't think this was quite how we envisioned it going down. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I envisioned something 
bigger, which I think a lot of people are are probably feeling as well, because this happened in a very strange way. And I also, I think it's one thing to talk about that, because I think so many of us are so desperate for change right now. And it's another to see it happen and to have the idea of real world violence in a way that like shatters the lives and security of many. That's really, I don't know, soul crushing and also like, oh God, here we are. I was really hoping I could be overseas when this finally went down. But also I think I woke up and I had a very different reaction to Maggie. You know, this happened and I was like, oh God, it's happening. Like violence is here and not knowing how to react with that. And then I woke up today and I was like, struck by the futility of it because even though it happened today is just the same as waking up yesterday the world hasn't really been altered joe biden despite the efforts is still the president-elect um the incumbent president even though we won the georgia senate the likelihood of the United States now changing drastically to fit even a moderate Democrat agenda is unlikely because the political power just isn't there. We're still dealing with COVID. And I think for me, it really made me angry that this was occurring because now it meant that the country could pretend like it was united and Republican senators and lawmakers everywhere are using this as a way to distance themselves from Trump supporters and therefore to not take responsibility for the very real hatred that has risen with the Trump presidency and not to take responsibility for white supremacy. And I don't know, I guess like, The end of this novel, for me, is probably what makes it the best reason why, like, we can use this as an anchoring. Because at the end of this novel, nothing has changed, despite our heroes or villains, however you want to view them, their best efforts. Everything is the same. They're different, and they've learned something, and they're going to keep fighting for something. But the government is after them, and... There's just, like, everything is still the same. No one has woken up. Yeah. I have a couple of thoughts based off that. The first thing that I want to say is that I think it is legitimate to have not necessarily been surprised, but, like, have been expecting something bigger and to talk about the futility of that. And I think that coming off of that, Harmony and I talked about this a little bit today, but I'm seeing it a lot in mainstream discourse about the fact that it was almost like play acting a revolution Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I think there's real value to dissecting that. But I feel like we do also need to mention the fact that there are people that work in the Capitol building that aren't legislators, senators, um, you know, House representatives, you know, people like custodians and secretaries that are largely people of color who were also in the building at the time, whose lives probably really did feel extraordinarily threatened, even though with a little bit of hindsight, we can maybe see that the threat of violence or the threat of actual change was pretty low. And just because we're talking about that and sort of a larger abstract figurative matter doesn't negate the trauma that those individuals who were likely in the building experienced at the time. 
Um, and I just wanted to get that out of the way at the beginning, because we probably will talk about it mostly in those large kind of abstract terms. And it's important for us and our listeners to keep that in the back of their minds. The second thing that I wanted to say is that I totally agree with you with the end of this novel being such a great anchoring point because you're right, nothing has changed. And part of this, I think, is because this is a series <laughs> from like a craft standpoint, you know, I think there's a place where this novel ends up on kind of not necessarily a hopeless note, but like there's this point where all of our characters are like, how did that not work almost? And that sets you up in the next books to unpack next steps and things like that. But it really does, I think, emphasize the fact that political systems and societal beliefs about how the way things are, are extraordinarily deeply ingrained in us. And shock value, so to speak, just because something is true, doesn't necessarily break through that especially in circumstances like we live in today, I think like the people in this novel live in to a certain extent where there is a lot of suspicion of authority that's not necessarily placed in the right contexts, which I think Harmony and I are going to unpack a little bit more later in the podcast. Yes, I agree. And on your first note, I want to add to um, that this was, as Maggie said, like a very real world trauma Uh, especially for the people who were there and subject to it. But it's also okay for you to be feeling traumatized by this event because we've been dealing with a lot as a world. Um, And I think that our sense of security has been continually threatened throughout this year and really for the past four years. And just because I have a bleak idea about it, and I do think that Things have not changed in a way that the the insurgents, you know, definitely wanted it to change or that I personally want, want them to change to. It doesn't mean that, like, you are not allowed to have a lot of feelings about it. And it's perfectly okay to do that. And that can be, you know, coinciding with whatever action you d- might decide to take or it can be separate. Like, it's okay to have feelings about everything that is going on right now. Yeah, yeah. The term collective trauma has been thrown around a lot recently, especially with COVID. And I think it really applies here. Moments of collective trauma reach outside of the people who were maybe directly involved, directly witnessed the sort of moment of violence, etc. And they can extend to every like large communities. So sometimes that means like a town, for example, but in cases like this, in cases like 9-11, for example, in cases like major school shootings, we've seen this, the Boston bombings, that can be native nationwide to the point where people can experience post-traumatic stress symptoms. And it's okay to feel that way. And it's okay to need to process all of that. And what you're feeling is very, very real even if you weren't in the building at the time and I I just think that that's really important to address as well you're totally right Harmony yeah let's start talking about dystopians and speculative fiction because this book actually won an award for speculative fiction and I think this I think discussions about dystopians right now are really potent so um I have a few articles here that I'm going to link in the show notes to that kind of ground what I'm talking about But dystopian fiction 
is really prevalent in YA. And let me just give you a quick definition of what the meaning of dystopian is. So a dystopian is essentially a futuristic society based off of some elements of the real world in which the government system is corrupt in some way. And there are a few examples of this listed in a blog post that I found from a website called dystopianliterature.weebly.com. So the the different genres within that, the different types of dystopians you can have is listed in this article as environmental destruction, meaning that, you know, the environmental resources of the world have been all used up and now we don't have things like water as easily accessible as natural vegetation. You know, we can see this both in two of the Octavia Butler novels we read, or I guess the two series that we read, both of them which would be the Exogenesis series and the Earthseed series. Another one is Nuclear Disaster, where harmful radiation shapes the world. Another one is Government Control. 1984 is perhaps one of the most widely known examples of that, of this idea of the government controlling us and censoring us to the point where, like, We aren't allowed to even have relationships or have any sort of personal lives that the government isn't surveilling. So another one is religious control. I think we see that in books like The Handmaid's Tale, where there is this like divine church that is controlling us. Um, Technological control, survival, and then loss of individualism. So this novel, it's not really specified. It's kind of talked about, but it's not really specified specifically what what's wrong with this society right away. And it's actually a little bit less dystopian than a lot of these other books because their government and their world does look a lot like ours, except maybe more futuristic. Going off of that list, those things don't necessarily have to be discreet either, like... Uh, a lot of them blend in together. And I think what we do end up finding out about the dystopian sort of elements in this world end up being kind of a mix of nuclear environmental sort of fallout because of the nuclear and then a little bit of like the governmental stuff, which is less obvious at the beginning, but is largely what the conspiracy they uncover is. Yeah. Um, but their world in the beginning looks a lot like ours, except more futuristic. You know, there are people living in middle class neighborhoods, relatively middle class lives. Food access is a little bit more difficult. Um, there's a lot more reliance on technology, but that's never really seen as a bad thing. And the big thing is that now they have superheroes who happen to be government controlled, which are, you know, weapons <laughs> and also machines for propaganda. So I did some research uh, from places like Book Riot and The Guardian, and there is a lot of claims out there that dystopian novels are particularly prevalent right now in YA and have been really since like the 2010s, which I think is a fair assessment. We can see that with The Hunger Games and the Divergent series, and it's really just continued from there. But... Even though they've been prevalent for all that time, they haven't always gotten the same attention. And really, since 2016, they've kind of fallen out of favor a little bit because our world is starting to look very dystopian in a way that we never thought possible. However, there's a quote here in one of the Book Riot articles, 
And again, I'm going to link it for you. It's um, from the article called Bring Back Dystopian YA. And the author writes, but the problem with this stance is that dystopian YA has always depicted contemporary issues, at least ones that are largely faced by communities of color. And I think that's really prevalent, especially because, especially in our current moment, talking about the insurgents, A, and then B, with this book, because this is by an own voices author. Even though we don't always see YA characters who are white in dystopian situations, we have to remember that, like, the dystopian world and the dystopian situations that are often brought up have been more prevalent in real world communities of color all over the world. I mean, even if you take The Handmaid's Tale, for instance, that was heavily based off of problems that were occurring in the Middle East. And Margaret Atwood has written about that ad nauseum. And I'm sure there are plenty of problems with that because she's a white author co-opting some of the real world events that have happened. But also we can see it in terms of like authoritarian governments. We can see it in terms of internment camps and all of these other factors that make being a person of color in our world less safe and less secure. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that relates to what happened yesterday, Maggie? Well, (laughs) a group of white supremacists (laughs) attacked the Capitol building. So when we're talking about being a person of color in our world and and therefore having a, a less safe and less secure experience, that's like the highlight of it. And that's what a lot of the outrage around these events has actually kind of come to, to a certain extent, specifically in the use of the lack of police force to deter this very violent group of individuals. And the tweet that I, one of the tweets I keep seeing going around essentially says, well, this is a really strange way to find out that the police in fact do know how to deter things without using deadly force. And I think that that really gets to the heart of it. There's been a lot of false claims going around that no one was arrested yesterday. That's not true. The last I checked, there have been over 70 people arrested. But what is true is that proportionally to protests that happened last year in response to the uh, killing of George Floyd, there's been uh, proportionately a lot less people arrested so far and also on significantly lesser charges which I think is really relevant to this whole conversation about, you know, being a person of color makes your experience less safe and less secure. But I think that ultimately what it comes down to is that this idea that, you know, we're living in a dystopia now is kind of a very white take just because it's very like, oh, we have all just opened our eyes and actually seen how unfair and unjust our world is because we've been able to live in our safe and secure bubbles for a really long time. And I think ultimately a lot of what's started to pop this bubble for people has been racial injustice in the United States. Uh, For some people, it's been the impending doom of climate change and the fact that environmentally Uh, Our lives are about to change dramatically in the next 10 years. And also it does go back to collective trauma because collective trauma isn't just event-based. It's also generational. And we've seen over the past five, six years, so much research come out of the scientific community showing the very real effects of generational trauma, especially on the descendants of slaves. And the fact that it has real psychological and physiological effects on people 
And I think all of this plays into both the world that's set up in this book, but more importantly, our real world as well. Yeah, I agree most certainly. I also want to add to one of the other big highlights that we've seen through this. And people, like even the mainstream media, even Joe Biden is admitting, right, that this would have been worse if it were BLM protesters, because it's just so apparent that we can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things is that the cop presence was less, and that's that's a big fact. Even though we knew that something like this could happen, Trump was calling for it to happen. We knew at the very least that there'd be protesters there. We didn't know it would get violent. And the police that were there declined help from the National Guard. So, not, Oh, sorry. Not only that, but the president refused to call in the National Guard and Vice Pre- President Pence had to essentially go f- past his chain of command, so to speak, to attempt to call in 1100 National Guard, which is extraordinarily unprecedented. Yeah. One of the other narratives that I keep seeing happen, and I don't want to get too into like conspiracy theory here because you know, even my partner is talking about that and he's like, oh, I'm a conspiracy theorist now because I think it's just so hard for us to accept that this event occurred is that this event was allowed to happen. And to some extent it was, whether we put all of that blame on President Trump or whether we put some of that blame on the police or whether we put collective blame on our government as a whole, this was an event that was like sanctioned because it did not actually present a threat to our power structures, which is scary. And I don't know how to feel about that because had these had these people been more organized, something very real and very big could have happened. They did find bombs. I don't think, last I checked, I don't know if they actually worked, but like people did bring weaponry. People just weren't unified and organized enough to like know what they wanted to do. It was kind of an angry mob. The yeah. pipe bomb in the RM and the RNC was operational and they did have to detonate it. I don't know necessarily about the bombs that they found in the Capitol building. Um, but you're right that there's a weird narrative about organization here because on the one hand, there's evidence that this was all premeditated. It was all kind of on Facebook, on Twitter. Even as I was watching CBS of all places yesterday to get my news, you know, they were discussing this like the news anchor was live on air looking at Facebook kind of showing some of this premeditation but yeah the lack of organization ultimately meant that it was less effective and I think painted it to a certain extent as more of an emotional outburst but part of the scary part about the organization I think is the flames that have been stoked by Trump and his advisors. I mean, even Giuliani yesterday saying it was time for trial by combat. Like that is the part to me that feels the most organized and the most terrifying is the fact that it was calculated and they knew what they were doing and they were likely aware of what the results were going to be, even though now (laughs) everyone and their mother who used to work for Trump is resigning largely. I think like Harmony was saying earlier to get off a sinking ship and try and distance themselves from this train wreck that they have actively, not even just allowed, but like actively participated for years to occur 
Because as much as we talk about Trumpism as the last four years, of course, you know, these sentiments have been building up for decades and decades beforehand. And I think most specifically since President Barack Obama was elected and there was a lot of dissent about the fact that there was going to be a black man in our highest office. So all of these flames have been stoked and calculated for way longer than this Trumpist presidency as well. Yeah. I mean, white supremacy has always been here. (laughs) And sometimes it's been a little bit more shadowed, but it never really left. It's just sometimes been more emboldened than in recent years. In like the past 20 decades or 20 years, I'd say. Um, 20 decades. 20 decades. Well, yeah. The last two for forever. Yeah. As much as that was a funny slip of tongue, it is true. Yeah. What's What's been happening more in recent years that we haven't seen quite as much since like the 60s is, you know, like government officials hopping on the bandwagon, so to speak, publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, publicly. Before it was just kind of, oh, I'm funded by a group affiliated with the KKK, but we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to say that it's wrong, but we're not going to talk about it. And there was implicit and explicit racism in the things that they said and did, but it never went quite as far, again, publicly as endorsing, (laughs) stand back and stand by. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But anyway, I guess, too, it's hard for me to talk about this because, again, I don't want to play too much into a conspiracy narrative. And it's also very possible that this has gone too far for even the GOP, right? Like, I think it has because it's become a little bit uncontrollable. But also, this is this was valuable to them for a while. So that's why they're okay with it. And when I say Republican lawmakers, I'm not even talking about the Trump people. Like, I'm, I am i mean, I kind of am, but I'm talking mostly about like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and all of those assholes <laughs> who hold real power and are racist fucks and then like to pretend sometimes that they have human decency. To me, in terms of like comparing it to this book, there is a real feeling here that is similar to like the heroes villains narrative, not that the villains are harmless because they do have real harm in our story, but also it feels like this is a very convenient narrative to, like I said before, give Republicans a way to distance themselves from this, this part of their base and also to add some unification to the country and also to distract from the fact that we aren't going to do anything for the next four years we're really going to just try to be, try to get back to normalcy. And the thing is, like, I would love if all of Biden's campaign things did end up getting passed. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. But they're not going to, in part because we don't have the power. And then also because it just doesn't work anymore. And also, like, we can't go back to normal. We're literally living, we've been living in a pandemic for the last year. There is no more normal. (laughs) Like, we just have to, like, suck it up and be like, this is the world. How do we fix it? Yeah, I I, I completely agree with you. And even with the scapegoat thing, I think you see it, uh, you saw it immediately yesterday, right? When the, when Congress went back into session, you know, there was initially 11 senators who were going to oppose confirming the certified electoral ballots for Biden and immediately immediately five of them bailed and they were like yeah we can't do this anymore we can't support this etc so like it was it was tangible how quickly it happened man if you told 2012 Maggie 
that in 2020, the only Republican that I would think had maybe even slightly a shred of backbone is Mitt Romney. <laughs> I would have peeled over. <laughs> but it's been true for the last four fucking years is that he's been one of the only people to push back uh, on the Republican side to push back against Trump. Um, to respond to the other part of what you said, I completely agree, right? We are going to see, I think, not very much change. Uh, unless, except for through executive orders, likely, and those always get pushed back from the GOP, which is going to be hilariously ironic considering Trump's last four years, but we know that's the rhetoric they're going to go back to. And whether those are good executive orders or not will really highly depend on the progressives that are in Congress, like the squad, to be able to effectively pressure Biden to actually pass them. And there's a lot of ifs there. There's a lot of ifs, ands, or buts. Um, And this is all because people are comforted by the false idea of normalcy. Uh, And by people, I largely mean white people, (laughs) or, you know, straight cis people, depending on how you're kind of slicing and dicing what your scenarios look like, what we see as quote unquote, the majority of people. And there's a real, I think, attitude of the devil, you know, is better than the one that you don't. That's what I really see to the tie here in Not Your Sidekick is almost an an understanding of, well, we understand how this, we understand how this works. And therefore, we'd rather kind of keep trying to plow our way through this than accept another system, which I think goes all the way from problems with race, which to the fact that America is so married to capitalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're incredibly married to capitalism, and yet we're not going to do anything <laughs> to make it easier for the capitalist system to survive. Capitalism is working really well in places like China because they have a fully authoritarian government and are kind of just cool with that. And that's fine. And also because they have some actual like the state can make things. The state can quarantine everyone. Right. So, yeah, we we like to I mean, capitalism sort of has some birth ties to America, not that industrialization didn't also happen in Europe because it did. But because of the different political scenarios there versus like the classical liberalism of the American dream and the American foundations, I think that capitalism as we know it is a very American idea. And I mean, I've never really agreed with it, but like even that concept, that idea, even the way that it's supposed to work, like it's just... It does not work anymore. You can't do it in the American way anymore because we refuse to give anyone any security system. And because the world is literally disabling us from working right now in the way that we normally would. Sorry to everyone who came here thinking we were going to talk about books. Harmony and I are sociopolitical commentators now. I mean, should we talk about the book now? (laughs) I I think that we should. I want to do it from a lens though if you're okay with it with talking about conspiracy because this was such a huge part of the plot and I think we do have to address suspicion of authority both in the real world and in this novel as well um because what happens in the book is you know these kids uncover this plot with 
you know, that the government is making superheroes, etc. And it's largely being, it's largely about taking down sort of the authoritative figure that the what's left of the collective which is sort of what north america has become really looks up to who is called captain orion who is like the lead superhero um she is the authoritative figurehead that turns out to be evil that turns out to not have people's best interests at heart etc um for those of you who've seen the boys she's very much a homelander-esque figure but like a little bit less violent (laughs) and in this book, this conspiracy ends up being real, right? And they're able to gather evidence that it's true and spread it out. And some people believe it, some people don't. It ultimately ends up with a sense of normalcy, or even though they want change. But in the real world, conspiracy doesn't necessarily always work like that sometimes it does like with the edward snowden leaks and things like that that almost went down exactly like it did in the book something that should have been shocking huge news got leaked to the public the public went oh my god and then nothing actually changed as a result of that but largely conspiracy doesn't necessarily work like this yeah i think something i'm struggling a lot with right because i've joked a lot this year and conversations with our friends that I'm starting to feel like a conspiracy theorist, but honestly, it's just that I'm becoming more critical of authority and power. And I don't necessarily, like, I I don't subscribe to any real conspiracy theories. I think that the problem is that sometimes for a lot of conspiracy theories, not everything, but sometimes there is some truth in the things that, like, we see the Save the Children QAnon theory, which I honestly don't know enough about, but, like, There are real child sex rings, right, that the rich and powerful use. Or, like, the Illuminati, right? The rich and powerful are in charge of the world and running it. Like, these things have a basis in truth, but they also shouldn't be that surprising to you if you are thinking critically about things, right? The idea that the rich and the powerful are in charge is not a conspiracy theory. It's just the truth. And the problem comes when you get so bogged down in that, right? That you start listing, you you start creating a bubble for yourself of misinformation. So like, yes, the rich and powerful have exploited children for forever and are rampant sexual abusers. And yes, the rich and powerful run everything. However, that does not mean that Hillary Clinton herself is in charge of a pizza shop that has like child sex slaves in the bottom of the basement or something like that. You have to be really careful about the facts that you consume. And you can see these things if you're looking at the media and you're looking at the media critically. And as a former journalist, too, I want to point out, because I think that this relates a lot to conspiracy theory, I think a lot of the issues that people who end up going into the conspiracy theory zone contend with as they're doing that is is the fact that the media is incredibly biased and the media is sometimes red taped, right? So part, part of being a critical person and being critical of authority is also learning how to read the news critically. And you should be doing this just as a point blank. Like this should have happened way before Trump took office. People need to learn news literacy. And part of that is understanding the fact that everybody has bias, 
right? And that there are certain stories that get promoted more for mean reasons of money or for political sway or for whatever reason, because somebody is paying, you know, the company is is putting ads at a, a certain newspaper, or maybe stories aren't being reported on for the same reason, right? Because there's certain political affiliations, certain bias, and it doesn't have to be even like conspiracy stuff. You also have to look at things and question who the narrator is, because everybody in this world has a different lens, and therefore their version of the truth is going to be different. Everybody has a different narrative. So learning what narrative is and learning to be critical of narrative is key to being a responsible citizen. And you can do that. And I think if you do that well, you're not necessarily going to descend into a conspiracy theorist who's like, oh, 9-11 was an inside job. I mean, actually, I don't know. Maybe there is some truth to that. But like, (laughs) or like, I don't know, people didn't end up on the moon or a flat earther. Right. You're going to be able to look at things and piece together the truth based off of multiple narratives. And I think a really big issue in the United States, at least, is the line between critical thinking and outright suspicion of anything that doesn't confirm your own biases. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get some of the most outlandish theories like Flat Earth, like Sandy Hook was a hoax and things like that because they don't align with your worldview or for some people they don't align with what you think is possible to happen in the world and therefore you can't accept it as the truth. So there's this real fine line that you have to figure out for yourself and also get training on with media literacy to figure out where your own like being critical and being rightly suspicious of what you're being told is versus being suspicious of everything and everyone and everyone's motives to the point where you can't see what the facts are pointing you to. You only see what you want to see. And conspiracy theories that are really outlandish can do a lot of harm. We've mentioned this before on the podcast very briefly, but I think today we might end up diving into it a little bit more. I'm from Sandy Hook. I have really bad PTSD from everything that happened at Sandy Hook. And there was demonstrable harm that came from the conspiracy that is still really rampant today over eight years later that Sandy Hook was a hoax, both psychologically talking again about collective trauma to the people who live there, the people who like me, lost loved ones. Although I should clarify, no direct member of my family was hurt in this tragedy. It was a a family friend. And also there becomes larger societal and governmental impact in that three months later, for example, there was so much tension about background checks that the Sandy Hook law wasn't passed in front of the family's who lost their children. And a lot of that animosity was largely fueled by conspiracy. Not all of it, of course, like I don't want to boil it down that far, but it contributed a lot. So I wanted to flag that because this book, I think rightfully given the context, paints conspiracy as almost something positive to a certain extent because there's evidence because they know that it's happening because they try and are because they're trying to create positive world change but 
you know, going back to the idea of critical thinking, it's really important as individuals thinking about our own world to understand that things are rarely this cut and dry and that figuring out how to think about the world around you from outside of your own perspective as well is really, really, really important when you're talking about authority figures and trying to parse out what's being told to you. And sometimes it's just as basic as going farther than the headline on news articles. Yeah. Which sounds really easy, but sometimes I'll even find myself doing it, right? Because headlines are supposed to be snappy. They're supposed to like get you interested, but they hardly they get, ever tell the whole story. <laughs> they hardly ever, because they're clickbaity. They want you to click through. But when you don't and you only end up telling part of the story, you're really participating in spreading misinformation. And that sounds like such a basic thing, but it can be really difficult to train yourself to do in this time where technology and information moves and comes at you so fast to actually sit down, <laughs> read an article and give yourself a chance to download and digest everything that you're seeing. Yeah. And I think part of this too, just putting on my old journalist hat here, I think part of this too is the fact that like, it's hard work, right? Especially right now. I want to, I, I've been avoiding the news lately. That doesn't mean that it still doesn't reach me. And I kind of have an attitude where like the big stuff will reach me. You know, I have news alerts on my phone and whenever I see an interesting headline, I'll click on it and read the whole thing. But like, you don't have to be a slave to the news cycle right now. I get that it's scary. That's not necessarily a part of being a well-informed citizen. But it is like learning to critically think, learning to fact check information before you go out and put it out there. It's one thing to do something word of mouth. We all make mistakes. But when you end up posting misinformation on places like social media, it has a higher reach. And then people end up repeating misinformation. And sometimes that's really extreme misinformation. Or it's something like we mentioned earlier about the idea that no one has gotten arrested, right? That's doesn't appear harmful, right? Because it has the same general sentiment that this was treated differently than the Black Lives Matter protests, even though it was arguably way more harmful. <laughs> but if you're repeating that misinformation, that makes it a lot easier for people to, to dismiss you. And to point out that your facts are wrong. And then it invalidates your argument. So a lot of it is just like learning how to think critically. I also want to talk about what you were talking about a little bit earlier about conspiracy in the lens of this book. Because even though they uncover a conspiracy, I'm not sure that... I mean, it's a it's a fluffy book, so obviously it's very simplistic, right? Like it's a fun it's a it's a fun YA fluffy novel. It's supposed to be simplistic for the the flow of the narrative. However, I don't know if that necessarily would qualify as a conspiracy theory because they have evidence, right? Is it conspiracy, or are they just being critical of authority and then finding out for themselves based off of evidence and facts that they're being lied to by their government? I guess the more accurate term would potentially be that it's a confirmed conspiracy in the sense that the government is conspiring to lie to the people, which I think is largely the things that we have evidence for, again, in our own context, the mm -hmm. way things end up going down, you know, government surveillance, things like that. It's we're being either lied to directly or lied to by omission people gather the evidence, and then this conspiracy is confirmed. 
But I think that you're right that it can be harmful to equate those two things by using the same term, conspiracy theory, even though colloquially that's how a lot of people end up throwing it around regardless. So I think part of the problem here and a part of critical theory, right, is that we we know that our president lies, right? So that's the thing. He's supposed to be an authority figure. We know that he lies. We know that doctors or scientists aren't always right. So then we're not going to necessarily believe everything that they say about COVID. And instead of doing that, I think what we need to like really nail into ourselves as a nation and as individuals is that it's okay to be critical of authority, right? Because authority figures are just people, but you also then need to do the research to confirm that your reason for being critical of the, of authority is valid. You know, maybe you you are told something by your doctor, so you go and you get a second opinion, right? Because you have that sort of authority over your body and you know something's not right. That is a case where it's completely fine to be critical of authority. And it's it's always okay to be critical of authority. But you're also, if your doctor is telling you that this is the only thing that can save your life, like, yeah, you can go ahead and get a second opinion. And if they tell you that too, like, you really need to listen because that's the only thing that's going to save your life, you know? I think also it's important when talking about science, uh, specifically, I would say things with COVID, for example, to understand whether you're being misinformed deliberately or if this is where you're at in the scientific discovery process. I Early last year, I would say the sentiment that I was gathering was that a lot of people felt like things were changing so quickly and they felt like they were being misinformed almost on purpose, when in reality, it was because this was a new disease, which we had some basis for understanding because it was derivative of a different SARS-CoV-2 disease. But the reason information change was changing so quickly wasn't because we were being deliberately misinformed by the scientific community, but because the scientific community was scrambling to figure out what the right information actually was and was often being, um, not, not being, was often positing theories that they thought were very likely earlier in their, you know, scientific process than they maybe would have otherwise because we needed to respond as a general public. So the thing with masks, for example, it wasn't that, (laughs) you know, they were trying to make COVID spread faster or anything by not suggesting masks and then suggesting them eventually. It was because we were still trying to figure out how the disease spread and what the biggest, you know, risks were. At the time, there was a lot of concern about touch and whether or not uh, there was ways to uh, get COVID from objects. And that was a really, really big concern that turned out to be unfounded. So there's also a level of understanding a little bit about the field that you're trying to be critical of as well. Things like climate change, (laughs) information changes because we're discovering it, stuff like that. Yeah, I think you also need to look holistically at something because like Maggie was talking about masks. We know that masks prevent spread of like colds and things and it's accepted in other countries. I think that the government did not want us to go crazy with them as we did everything else like toilet paper or meat. 
and really wanted to give supply chain supplies to healthcare workers who desperately needed it at the time because this virus was spreading so fast. And that was part of why the public message about masks was don't wear masks right now because they didn't know for sure that they worked. Yes, but also because if we went out and got them, there would not be enough for the doctors. And part of that is has to do with other political things. But I also think a lot of this spread, a lot of the issues too, right, were that some of our politicians, and this isn't just Donald Trump. I live in New York City and my mayor is supposedly a progressive, although fuck him, he's not a progressive. He was telling people to still go to restaurants and stuff during the beginning of the pandemic. And that's part of why it hit us so hard, because we didn't want to deal with the fall of capitalism. We didn't want to have to support our businesses. And there are a lot of like arguments that you can trace about why he did that, right? You can talk about the fact that we didn't get enough aid and the fact that Donald Trump refused a lot of aid and the fact that we just weren't generally ready for a pandemic, even though we could have been a little bit more ready. So I see why people are making conspiracy theories, but you also like part of being critical is looking at things holistically and understanding that people are going to lie to you, but that does not mean that Sandy Hook didn't happen or that we didn't land on the moon. Often when people are lying to you, it happens in smaller, more realistic ways. It's not necessarily outrageous. Yeah, with the, the mask spreading when it comes to understanding, like trying to prioritize healthcare workers first, because as we know, the federal government sold a lot of our PPE equipment to other countries and things like that. And that wasn't and hasn't clearly been a priority of the White House. The second thing is that there was some scientific evidence that made it unclear about whether masks would be actually the most effective way to fight COVID because there was uncertainty about respiratory droplets, how far they were traveling, whether it was airborne, that we have a lot more clear answers now. Yeah, I think that that's the problem with conspiracy theories is that we think that it's something big and outrageous rather than something real. And oftentimes it is real. I don't... I don't know what the truth is for people who go completely haywire and are critical of things like Sandy Hook, for instance. I think a lot of that has to do with collective trauma. But I think in a lot of the conspiracies that we're seeing now, like with Save the Children or our conspiracies about COVID, have to do with us going haywire with these real instances of misinformation because we don't know how to think critically and therefore don't know how to piece together things. And I also think it has to do with collective trauma as well. It can, but I do think that you walk a dangerous line sometimes when you push those things onto collective trauma, because it is related to like psychological responses that are negative and can sometimes be equated to mental illness. And I think that there is a fine line that can be walked there where collective trauma can sometimes feel these things, but I wouldn't want to necessarily blame the Sandy Hook thing on it because specifically in that scenario, there was a lot of claims that Adam Lanza was mentally ill when he wasn't. And then also that the Florida professor who started this whole conspiracy theory was mentally ill when he wasn't. And collective trauma affects people negatively mentally. Uh, like I said, it can really affect, um, it can it can incite in people post-traumatic stress symptoms and things like that, which is 
a hair's breadth away from PTSD, which is really stigmatized mental illness. And I think that confirmation bias sometimes plays a bigger role than that. Not to say that collective trauma never does, but I do think a lot of times it's confirmation bias more largely, more broadly, I guess, when it comes to things like Sandy Hook, when it comes to things like believing that Hillary is so corrupt that she would, you know, keep sex slaves in a basement and uh, a pizza place in in New Jersey. That just doesn't even make sense. Like, there are plenty of other reasons she's corrupt. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It, and it boggles mind. I legitimately know somebody in this world who genuinely believes that to this day. And he cannot tell me why, because that's how little sense it makes. Um, Not that I want to totally derail our conversation here, but we are at an hour and we haven't talked a ton about some of the feminist themes of the book. Do you maybe want to switch to talk a little bit more about some of the aspects of the text specifically? Um, I think in terms of feminism, I think the fact that our main character is a humble person who is often overlooked has feminist leanings? What do you think? I do as well. I mean, I think this book is a lot about the fact that no matter what your personality is and no matter who you are and what abilities you do and don't have, you are the main character in your own life, no matter how others see you. So this whole not your sidekick idea comes from a conversation that Jess has with her sister, Claudia, who is an A-class superhero, is ultimately working really close with Captain Orion, all of this stuff. And Claudia offers her a position to be, offers Jess a position to be Claudia's sidekick. And it's like, I know that you don't have any, you know, powers, but like, I can get you in there. It'll be great. It'll be like old times and you'll just be my sidekick. And Jess is very much like, no, like I have my own thing. I have this job. I really like it. I'm self-fulfilled. And I think that you see that throughout every aspect of this story. Jess doesn't see herself as being particularly gifted because her little brother is like a prodigy in school. So she views she views herself as not being somebody who's very smart. And her parents sometimes reinforce that by accident, I think. But they do. And she's just genuinely seen as somebody who's not very special. And she fights to make sure that she is the main character in all of her own decisions and her own life. And she makes her own path because of all of that. And I think that that is really feminist. Like, you don't have to be the best at something to be feminist. You don't have to be the best superhero or have the most superpowers. You can just be you in whatever way you come. And that's okay, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I agree. I think, too, like, her skill sets are, I mean, she's very good at writing, and then she's also really good at organizing, and I think a lot of her skill sets have to do with administrative work, which is traditionally a field that we see a lot of women in, and I think is a very overlooked field, and I think those skill sets in of themselves are really overlooked. And so I think- Yeah, I was just going to say that it's a very devalued field. It's very like, oh, you're just a secretary or like you should be aspiring to to more than that. When in reality, lots of parts of our corporate world wouldn't work without people whose talents are being really good and clear communicators and being great organizers because those skills are just needed and not everyone has them. Oh, it's true. I'm a really bad organizer. Same. <laughs> um. I think another way that we see feminism play out, too, is just, like, this book does a really good job of including, um, of being inclusive without making you, like, without hitting you over the head with it, necessarily, right? Like, it's just very well incorporated. 
Belle, for instance, is, or it's Bells, sorry. Bells, for instance, is trans. And we only get confirmation of that throughout the book, like maybe in the middle of the book. Um, they talk, or yeah, they, in the book, they talk Bells and Jess about chest binding and so like that's one clue and then another clue is later on when Jess and her girlfriend Abby who isn't her girlfriend at the time is asking about Bells and uses the pronoun they because she isn't sure what his pronouns are and Jess kindly corrects her and I think while not directly feminist I think that gender theory and questioning gender in general has a lot to do with feminism. And I think that like Bells as a character is inherently feminist because I don't know, he's a cool character and he can like, he's literally a chameleon. He can change his form and be whoever he wants to be, which I think is also empowering. I completely agree. And I think going off of that, um, there's also things with sexuality here that are really empowered as well. Jess only has, you know, female love interest in the story. But she does explicitly state that she's bisexual. And she also feels comfortable enough in her sexuality to make her own decisions about what isn't isn't right for her. She is approached many times um, by a character named Daryl, who I think really has the right intentions. He's the president of the Rainbow Alliance, which is essentially just like, you know, a gay straight union. Uh, uh, as we see in, yeah, and in. in as we see often in high schools and in colleges and Jess is really not into it. She just doesn't think that she fits in there. She doesn't want to support them financially. She refuses to let herself be bullied into it. And I think it's really empowering to see a character um, take potentially a different tack with some of those organizations than I've traditionally seen in YA lit at the very least Um, as well as be really comfortable in who she is and her sexuality. I find it really refreshing to read queer books that aren't necessarily about questioning or coming out. Those narratives are really important and I think empower so many teens who are in the closet to um, question for themselves and figure out their own identity and maybe eventually also come out if they're in a safe space to do it. But sometimes it's just nice to see a bunch of LGBT characters who are comfortable and confident in who they are and I think that that's really empowering as well. Like your whole life as a queer person isn't based around your sexual identity and questioning what it is and whether it's safe to come out. I also really, really appreciate that. I think that um, kind of rightfully so, and in, in response to so much oppression, there are a lot of narratives out there that kind of imply that like being, I mean, people who I... I think that, like, when you're faced with that much oppression, it can be really empowering to, like, really fold the queerness into your identity. But Jess is really clear that, like, that's not all of who she is, you know? And I think that's also fine. She doesn't have to necessarily, like, wear it out there. It's just a thing for her. And that's okay. And we do get, like, we still get queer love stories (laughs) from it because it's just a part of who she is. I agree. I agree. I think something else that's really empowering about this story in a feminist way is the really strong friend groups. I think that a trope in literature of all ages, really, that we're starting to move away from is like this whole catty girl thing. Uh, The fact that you can't be supported. 
um, by your friends. And like this book really shows a super healthy friend group. It demonstrates how to deal with conflict within that friend group in a really healthy and supportive way that also doesn't feel like it's being like you're being beaten over the head with it by any means. Yeah, It shows how to deal with, you know, bringing a new significant other potentially into that friend group. And the fact that, you know, dating and having romantic feelings doesn't automatically ruin friendships, for example, in a way that I think is really empowering for girls because so many of the teen groups that I remember growing up are like mean girls and things like that, which I still think is a fun movie. Don't get me (laughs) wrong, but like there, there were many less positive relationships for female main characters than there are today. And I think this book is a really great example of that. And I appreciate also the fact that it's multifaceted in the fact that she's got a girl best friend, she's got a boy best friend, and she's got her girlfriend. Like it really navigates a lot of the intricacies of friendship in a way that I just loved reading about. Yeah, I agree entirely. Yeah, I think that it's especially refreshing because the last two narratives that we read, right, we were reading A Great and Terrible Beauty, and then we read Virgins by Daniel Evans, and those both depicted um, friendships that weren't necessarily, they weren't as strong and satisfying, you know? A lot of them were catty, and they were, they both added value to the narrative and probably the people who were in them if they were real people. But I think that, this depicts a lot of really healthy friendships and depicts how healthy friendships work in a way that is refreshing. I agree. I think a lot of the reason, not all of the reason, right? Because some of the time, some of the reasons why we're catty psychologists think with one another is like just a part of our social development, right? We're learning how to lie. We're learning about power dynamics and we're playing with them a little bit. But I also think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like women in particular are told that that's just something that they are to each other and that they don't like each other and that their value comes from men. And therefore that like makes that mean girl catty narrative stronger. And it doesn't have to be like that. All most of most of my best friendships, right? And most supportive friendships have been with fellow women. And yeah. Yeah. I think some going off of that, something else that this book does really well too, is also show disagreements in high school in a way that doesn't get mean and doesn't get catty. Just specifically is not friends with the volleyball team. She just doesn't feel like she fits in there. But it's never devolved to like slut shaming or, you know, the tropes of being like, oh, they're just bitches, right? Like Emma's on that team. Emma becomes friends with those girls. They're never like demonized or villainized for the fact that Jess just doesn't get along with them as strongly. So I think as much as the excellent friend group is really refreshing, it's also really refreshing to see a realistic portrait of disliking somebody or like not getting along with somebody in a way that's not just like mean or spiteful or based off the other person being genuinely mean or spiteful because you're not going to get along with everyone in this world and you don't have to take it to a real like cruel place to do that. And I think that's also a trope that a a lot of like high school narratives, whether they're geared for YA or adult audiences falls into often as well. And I was really satisfied to see Lee sort of avoid that. 
Yeah, I agree. I think we especially see that with the Gay-Straight Alliance. I think, too, like, we do see... So the reason she doesn't necessarily get along with the volleyball team is because two of the people there used to be her friends when they all went to, like, Chinese language school together. And one of the girls was kind of a mean girl um, and was mean specifically to our main character's brother. But... Yeah, Brendan. Is that his name or is it Brandon? I think it's Brendan. Okay. Well, whatever his name is. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think that, like, it also just shows, like, her response to that was to be like, that's my brother. And then she just didn't want to be friends with her anymore. And that's okay, right? Like, if we're encountering people who we think are toxic, it's okay to just cut off ties with them. But there isn't really any lingering drama. Like, she's like, oh, I don't like that girl, but it's not an everyday part of Jess's life. And she's not necessarily being bullied by this girl either, which I think is realistic and does kind of show like how we healthily deal with these sorts of conflicts. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I also think Abby is a really feminist character because she is like the popular girl, um, main love interest. And this trope is flipped in a few ways. This trope is flipped in part because she's a villain this trope is flipped in part because she's the love interest of another girl. Um, and then also we just get to see Abby be realistic. Like, just in the beginning, and it's even talked about in the book, which I also love, does only like Abby because she's, like, the popular girl and she's pretty and she likes the idea of her. But then she does get to know her and they develop a real friendship. Um and that doesn't make the feelings go away, but also, like, it's a real friendship. And Abby gets to go into the group, and she develops friends with Jess's friend, friendships with Jess's friends. And I just think that's really important, because when we get a love interest character, even when it's flipped, even when the gender dynamics are flipped, when it's, like, um, a male-female relationship, and the guy is the one who is, like, the, the one that we're all crushing on, I don't think that we really get a full rounded picture necessarily in most narratives of the love interest. I agree. I agree. I think also about Abby, she's a really gifted scientist, especially in robotics, even without her powers. There's a part at the end of the novel where her powers are taken from her and she's still able to do brilliant things with robotics, which is, you know, traditionally of not just like STEM in general, but robotics specifically is still very like male, cis male dominated. Um, And also, even though she's the popular girl being viewed from the outside, when we get to know Abby more, we realize that a lot of her relationships at that point in her life were super superficial because she had to hide the fact that her parents were uh, master and mistress mischief and the fact that her parents were villains. So even though from Jess's perspective and the school's perspective, she was really popular, she wasn't able to have a lot of substantial friendships. And I think that's also a really interesting subversion of some of those tropes that we've been talking about. I do have a question for you about Abby, though, which is how did you feel and I'm not trying to like lead this in any way. I'm just curious about the fact that she was M and that she let, and that as M she let Jess talk to her about her feelings for Abby, because ultimately it was like kind of cute. And I think it was like realistic to how teenagers would probably actually handle the situation, but I'm not sure it was necessarily the right thing to do outside of like the super the superpower aspect of everything and I just was curious to hear your take yeah it's like kind of a dick move but it also didn't 
personally offend me. And also, I think, like, realistically speaking, if we're going to look at this book in a realistic light, like, Abby was dealing with so many other things. And she didn't know that she could trust Jess with this. Jess's parents, even though she didn't know it, are literally superheroes. And so are literally a part of this propaganda machine, even though they don't directly know it. And also, I don't think that she was like necessarily, I mean, I think she was interested to know what Jess had to say. There's like, there's a little bit of like a non-consensual aspect to it, right? Because you're getting unfiltered thoughts about yourself through somebody else disguised. But to me, I kind of thought of it kind of like a lot of a Shakespeare, a lot of Shakespeare plays like Twelfth Night almost. Um, and I thought it was a cute take. And I can see why it could be problematic. But I also think that like, realistically speaking, she couldn't have pretended to do anything different. And I also think that because once she knew this part of Jess liking her she did go throughout the narrative throughout the book like she does start to approach Jess more as Abby and less as M I think because of that right because she wants Jess to see her as herself yeah yeah that's super true that's super true I think I would feel weirder about it if Abby wasn't so clear on boundaries like there's this there part of how they get closer to each other is they end up writing this cute like female female romance together for class as an assignment and it's like a whole thing of Abby trying to subtly tell Jess that she likes her because the characters are obvious caricatures of themselves and Jess doesn't see it which is adorable and so like relatable as a trope to how teenagers function um but Abby writes a sex scene between the two characters and Jess is like very flustered by it not that she's like uncomfortable with the sex aspect of it that I I think she's at but the part that she's sitting there is like I can't do this in front of this girl I like who doesn't know that I like her and Abby not only picks up on how uncomfortable Jess is feeling without her having to say it but she apologizes for not checking about those boundaries and make and like making Jess feel uncomfortable and I think that you can really see ultimately that Jess's comfort is Abby's number one priority and I feel like that ultimately outweighs some of the like potentially problematic aspects that happen with the whole M disguise. I also want to pick just a little bit at something you said about Jess's parents, just because I do think there is some implication in the novel that they were not unaware of the propaganda machine, but potentially willfully ignorant. Jess talks pretty deeply with her mom about the fact that the reason that they sort of kept up the status quo was because they were immigrants and they really struggled when they first came to the collective and what was most important to them, understandably, as I think for many people, was the fact that the government work kept a house over the head, kept, kept food on the table, and it was a way for them as immigrants to dive into this new country and be successful in a way that was really important. And I really enjoyed that take of the novel, because I think it's very true to life in the sense that that's how lots of people um operate (laughs) uh immigrants are not like a lot of people have to put family first in those situations where they feel food and housing insecure and I just really appreciated the nuance that Lee took unpacking all of that with Jess also thinking about it and saying you know I disagree with what my parents did ultimately but like I really understand why they did it and what sort of forced their hand into that and 
when Jess talks to her parents about it, like they're really receptive to all of it. Um, but I did just want to like throw that out there as an aside. Yeah, I agree. I think too that that's another aspect of this novel that ends up really working um, is the fact that like it depicts this in a very subtle way, this nuance about Jess's parents and the, like the mom does admit that she was kind of willfully ignorant and that this was her main priority. And she explains to this situation that was going on um, for her in her home country in China at the time and like why it was so important for her and empowering for her a little bit to be accepted into the collective. I agree. I just really appreciate the fact that like you can be an empowered person who's trying to empower other people and still make mistakes And what's really important in those moments is to, like, listen with empathy like her parents did, like her mom does, and reflect on your own choices and things like that and try and do better moving forward. And I feel like that's exemplified really beautifully in this novel. Okay, so let's talk about whether or not this was a feminist book. I think, yeah, definitely. I feel like it covers feminist themes. I feel like it's ultimately about an empowered female main character making her own choices, wanting to be... Uh, the protagonist of her own life and finding her own path in which to do that, even if it's not necessarily the predetermined or predescribed path that she either wanted to take or that society kind of expected her to take based on various aspects of her identity. I agree. I also think it was a feminist book. I think that, you know, it's an own voices author writing about a speculative fiction world that has a lot of similarities to ours. There's a main female character. It does a really great job of inclusion. Um, So yes, I also agree that it is an empowering and feminist book. And we even see solidarity in there. So like, yes. Um, Okay, what's the next question? Oh, homework. (laughs) Loaded question this week. Honestly, I think for me, and this might come as like being a little hypocritical, given the fact that we were just talking about like the fact that you don't have to be a slave to the news cycle. But I do think for me, I want to make it a priority to be a little bit more tuned in to news and also public opinion, especially for Black people of color about everything that's going on. Because Harmony and I have been talking about all day, really, the fact that it's kind of difficult to understand what the next step is through all this chaos and I want to keep myself as informed as possible so that when leaders in better positions than I am to make that decision kind of start to move some of these left priorities forward I can make sure that I'm following and supporting in the best ways that I can and to do that I just feel like I need to be a little bit more plugged in than I have been recently for the sake of my sanity what about you um that's not my homework (laughs) that's all I know um (laughs) I think that I just need to do a lot more processing and then like action planning for what comes next because I'm someone that likes to see multiple plans and I think that the big ones here are this either gets worse or we all go back to complacency and either one I don't want to be a part of And 
I've been starting to develop my like real world beliefs as to like what a government should look like and I an ideal government. And so I think part of that too has to be like, how do I translate that to right now and where we're at right now? And how do I translate that to action? So that is my homework. And of course, like a part of that has been recently, I guess, especially like since the Black Lives Matter protests, listening to what people of color have said and trying to let them lead the way. That's already kind of something that I feel like I've been okay at and I'm going to continue to do, but those are like the main steps that I think I need to move forward. <laughs> yeah. What are we reading next week, Maggie? <laughs> oh, uh, we're reading. What are we reading? Oh, Children of Blood and Bone. Right. Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. And we're reading up to page 259 or the end of chapter 33, which is pretty much the exact halfway of that story. Yes, we need to break that one up because it's a hefty book. It is. She's large. Oh, wait, we didn't do what we're reading. Oh, I'm reading Binti by uh, Nettie Oketafor. Oh, wow. Okay, yes, I am also reading Binti, and I'm also still reading because I really wanted to, like, drag it out, the the Once and Future Witches, and I'm still reading uh, Gods of Jade and Shadow. Okay, that's it. Bye! Bye Bye-bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash rgbc and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.